0: Welcome to the Those Who Dare podcast, where we amplify the voices of military veterans who consistently step outside their comfort zone and go above and beyond society's expectations. This series is brought to you by the team at AI Inventures, Ventures, a C-State Venture Fund founded by Service Academy graduates and Ironbound Media, a podcast production studio for veteran-owned businesses. If you're a military veteran and want to learn about the innovation ecosystem, and how to participate in it as an investor, employee, or entrepreneur, then you come to the right place. I'm your host, Sherman Williams, managing partner at AIN, where I oversee AIN's venture fund along with my co-founder Emily McMahon. I'm a former Naval officer, current venture capitalist, and someone who's committed to uplifting my community through education and inspiration, and by amplifying the voices of those who dare. Today, I'm happy to welcome um, Brad Harrison, who if you, a lot of you guys may not know, he's kind of responsible for all of this. And I want to give a quick bio on Brad, give him his flowers, and then we'll hop into the conversation. So Brad uh, is an entrepreneur and seasoned business development executive with a passion for building companies and pushing the envelope of technological innovation. He has successfully helped incubate several companies out of Scout's office, including Scout's most successful investment to date, Unite Us, as well as Portfolio Watch, which exited and assuredly. Brad also has deep experience in in developing concepts, including co-authoring three patents in search, geotagging, and personalization. Brad was a distinguished honor graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point and served as an Airborne Ranger in the United States Army for five years before retiring as a captain. He also graduated from MIT's Sloan School of Management, where he studied new product and venture development. While attending MIT, Brad was fortunate enough to work with the Indeca Technologies and Pure Tech Ventures, with Indeca Technology and Pure Tech Ventures to help launch a joint MIT Harvard incubator. He lives in Austin, Texas, with his wife Angie and their son Elvis and their daughter Scout, which the which is who is the namesake of his fund. Um, so, Brad, first of all, we just want to kick into this with where are you originally from, um, what led you to. Going to West Point. Let's just kind of start there.
1: Yeah. So first off, thanks, guys. You know, two of my favorite people on the on the line today that I respect and love. So good to be able to spend this hour with you. Um, you know, I grew up uh, just outside of New York City. My family is originally from the Bronx. You know, Hungarian Polish immigrants that you know came to the Bronx and eventually moved outside of the city. My dad bought the house he grew up in. And so I grew up in a small town called Briarcliff Manor. Um, my mentor, since I was a, a, a young, a wee lad, as he would call me, is a guy named Dick Parsons. Um, and so I've been super fortunate that, you know, I've had this amazing mentor who, you know, I've known my whole life. And, you know, Dick actually took his son Gregory and I up to West Point when we were kids, right? Like, and I grew up, my grandfather lived with us and he had been in the Navy. Um, and, you know, I went up to West Point and it's this like majestic place and it's got this history with, you know, where I grew up, right? Where, you know, where they caught Benedict Arnold and, you know, where they stopped the British and Um, you know, which is also, you know, talked about modern trade and agriculture and economics. And so, you know, I grew up, my dad was an entrepreneur. He said from the earliest stage, like, Hey, if you want money, like go work for it. So by the time I was 16, I had had a painting company, a lawn servicing company, and I was running the local little league umpires. Right. Which was actually the best gig in the world. Right. Cause you go get deal with these little kids, you get to put on the gear, be the home plate umpire. So, um, you know, I've been an entrepreneur forever and then, you know, I, I, I had a, a moment where I thought I was going to go play football at Princeton and do the whole Ivy league thing. And I had one of those coming of age moments you know, maybe argued with my parents or did whatever. And, you know, I, I set up an interview at West Point. I spent the weekend up there and that was it. I was hooked. I, you know, was admitted in the first 25 of my class, you know, uh, being a Jewish kid from Westchester, West Point is not on most people's list. So, you know, I think I, I kind of, you know, fit, fit a demographic that they were looking for. And, you know, The best decision I ever made. Amazing. And then um, what did
0: you do? What year did you graduate from West Point? What did you do after West Point, et cetera? Yeah.
1: So I graduated in 94 um, with a master's in theoretical economics and a a minor in systems engineering. Uh, I was an infantry officer. I went to airborne school, ranger school, kind of all the things, and then spent, you know, five years as an active duty airborne ranger in an infantry unit. Uh, I had the very, very tough assignment of being headquartered in Hawaii. And uh, they forced me to travel around the world to Japan and Australia and Philippines. And it was an amazing experience. Really great.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome.
1: Um, And what, what led you to
0: get out? What, what was the, what kind of prompted you to do so?
1: You know, um, I thought I was going to go to a ranger battalion and I got sent on a real world mission and I missed my window and the idea of doing pure staff time for the next eight years, that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an operator. That was what I wanted to do. So when I realized I wasn't going to be an operator, I said, let me go find something else to do. Um, and so I spent, I actually stayed in to finish out my full commitment I went to the Special Forces Warfare School at Fort Bragg and studied civil affairs and psyops, which was amazing, uh, very useful for negotiating, and, you know, and, and you know, how you, you know, how do you make friends in a foreign place? You know, how do you get people to share information with you? You know, really interesting stuff. Um, and then, so I called a mentor from West Point. He suggested I talk to somebody at MIT. I did, um, and I was able to get myself into MIT. Got it, got it, got
2: it. At that point, did you already know you wanted to pursue an entrepreneurial route headed into you know, MIT?
1: You know, I think at that point, I thought about building companies more from a financier, banker perspective, right? So, you know, all the, all the books that I probably read during that period was much more, you know, hedge fund managers, private equity managers, right? There wasn't a lot on venture capital, right? So, you know, I think, you know, and a bunch of my classmates that got out early were investment bankers, right? And it, you know, I knew they were working a lot, but they seemed to be making a lot of money. And, you know, so I didn't really know exactly what I wanted. And then, as soon as I got to grad school, um, there was this like entrepreneurial ecosystem through the roof at MIT during '99, right? I mean, people were dropping out of school, people were starting companies. And I realized right away that that was definitely what I wanted to do. Um, and actually, I got picked up um, to be a campus partner for, you know, an early stage fund that was like a campus fund. So I started doing venture stuff while I was in school. Um, and then I got to spend time working on Indeca and PureTech, which were actually, um, you know, two amazing companies. Uh, Dick Parsons invested in both of them. My dad invested with Dick and uh, Todd Dagras in PureTech and that company went public. So, you know, I, I really was, I I realized that building great companies was so much about the people and so i was really trying to spend my time trying to kind of find my tribe of people and i think that's really relevant for all of us cuz that's one of the things that veterans struggle with right they get, like they get out and they're like oh wait a second like where's my group you know i was in scottsdale yesterday with blake hall who's the founder of id.me um super super successful company um and i've been a seed investor since it was troop swap and you know with blake not only is he an unbelievably gifted ceo right and he you know he went to harvard and went to vanderbilt undergrad he's an athlete ran the 400 right like just but the dude spent 15 months in combat as the most successful like hunter-gatherer platoon in the history of the Rangers, right? Like that's like super badass. So getting to spend time with guys like that, you know, he could tell stories about soldiers that I couldn't stop laughing because it's like, you know, our soldiers were like caricatures of themselves. So having that common bond just allows you to develop a relationship with your entrepreneurs that's so much deeper. And, you know, one of the things, and I think I've probably said this to both of you separately as you were figuring out your next step, which is like, you gotta create your own narrative, right? You have to, nobody understands really what it means. If you tell them you're a Naval intelligence officer, they're like, uh, okay. sounds like you had a job in the Navy, but I don't know what that means. Right. But if you start telling them and you know, you tell them about the skills and then you add in your banking and, you know, right. You've created your own narrative and both of you guys have done an unbelievable job doing that. But the first thing we tell a veteran getting out who thinks they want to start a company is like, Hey, develop your own narrative, right. Then figure out what you're passionate about and then like figure out where you want to work. Uh, That's really important.
0: Uh, Sorry, Mike. I was going to say that's really important. I mean, I think, I, I definitely didn't get advice when I first got out to tell, to create, start crafting my own narrative. I mean, if anything, I, I had so much, humil- I, have a, I have some humility, right. And I'm humble. And, and you just, you, you feel almost weird even talking about yourself. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of veterans feel the same way, but, but it's necessary. I remember when I first got out, um, I didn't even want to want to set up a LinkedIn page. I had no social media profiles. That was it. know, based off my job in the Navy, it made sense. And people were like, dude, you're out now. You can, you can, you you probably won't have LinkedIn to try to get a job. And um, it was, it was, it was really, I mean, this was back in, you know, 2010 timeframe. So social media wasn't, wasn't uh, at that point, wasn't where it is now. But, um, you know, that's just, that kind of explains where I was coming from. But I think that's great advice to kind of start crafting your own narrative.
2: I tell people position yourself or be positioned, right? And there's a lot of vanilla out there in the world. If you wanna stand out from the crowd, you gotta know what space you wanna occupy in people's mind. And you know, one thing that I find fascinating about you, Brad, is I met you in 2017 at the Reggae Boxing Championships, right after I launched Ironbound Boxing. You were one of the first, you're the first venture capitalist I ever met, let alone one that was a veteran. Um, and one of the things I was curious about was you know what made you think about going in you know as an investor instead of an operator but then you start talking about your early experience you already had ran a paint company you had done all this different stuff and so you knew how to make sausage you knew the, what the reality of being an entrepreneur was like and how to create leverage i'm assuming and so yeah. as you started to think about the next level i'm excited to hear about you know uh being a, becoming an investor
1: yeah, you know, listen. Uh, when when the market blew up in two thousand, you know, I thought I was I was working with a you know a naval academy grad, and we thought we were going to get a big chunk of money from Harvard to run a fund, and I was just going to go straight into funding. Not getting that money because the market blew up was probably the best thing for me because what it forced me to do is I went down to AOL. I worked in Dulles, I got to write a bunch of IP. I worked with some amazing people, Ed Fish, Tobias Dengel, Ted Leonsis, the vice chairman. And so, you know, what an unbelievable opportunity to like sit in the board meeting of AOL, right? Like one of the biggest internet successes of all, you know, with these billionaires who had made it all themselves. Um, And so I'm really blessed that, you know, in that kind of, you know, I remember sitting on my couch and kind of running out of money and, you know, my mom had cancer. So I was like commuting to New York. I was living in Boston. The market was a disaster, right? Everybody had lost all their money and really like putting together a plan from there, which was okay. Okay. Let's go to a big corporate that's a technology company. Let's get some traditional biz dev. Let's do that. Then from there, I went to a startup that was in New York that was doing contextual advertising, right? So a lot of this stuff that I had written my IP about and my time in DECA, like I understood all of that. So we thought we were going to go public. We got hit with FCC privacy concerns. So I navigated all of that. And so all those things, Mike, it actually goes to what you were talking about. All these little experiences in business gave me like a huge framework of like, oh, that risk factor on the deck when it says what happens if government regulation changes? Oh, I just lived through that and it cost me $11 million on my options because we didn't go public, right? So, you know, I think living it in this experiential way And then, you know, I grew up when I was at MIT, you know, the valley was the valley. So I had gone to the valley a couple of times, you know, I'd been to, you know, Google and I don't know, oh three, I think I still have a lava lamp from back in the day, you know, like, so I got to see a lot of these amazing companies kind of grow and I got to work in them. And I think that gave me a sense for like what is possible, like what happens when you get it right. You know, you walk out to Google, right? When when they were, you know, when they were just getting started and then you go out to Google now and you're like, okay, like this is how you build a huge business. Um, And so I think having these different experiences and then, you know, after I left that startup, I started a consulting business where I advised early stage CEOs in New York. Right. And this is right when New York was becoming a, an ecosystem. Right. So, you know, I'm kind of like one of those, you know, not as OG as Fred Wilson, but kind of in that like old school crowd of, you know, New York where you had kind of worked in business and you would spent time in the startup scene. Um, and then I built in Oh uh, nine, I started writing checks off of my own balance sheet. Uh by 2011 I had turned that into the first fund. I think in 2015 we sold Olapic where I was the first $15,000 outside check. We sold Olapic for 149 million of which 130 million was cash up front. So it was great. Everybody made a bunch of money. Um but what I realized along the way, right, as I went from Fund 1 to 1A to 2 to 3, and the best-performing companies in my portfolio were, you know, entrepreneurs that had come out of the military, the intelligence community, or research institution or lab. They were just outperforming, right? And it doesn't mean I don't have, like, you know, a percentage that, you know, are just straight up entrepreneurs. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. But it was like something about, you know, those backgrounds where they connected with us better. We connected with them better. We had a shared culture. You didn't really have to worry about the integrity thing as much, you know, there was not as much, you know, it, it, culturally, you're just a better fit. Um, and so, you know, we kind of doubled down on that concept of the veteran entrepreneur. And I'm super lucky. I have three unicorns, um, ID.me, Unite Us, and uh, we hope it'll come out publicly soon that Voyager, you know, when they do their IPO should be, uh, you know, should have a pretty good valuation. And, you know, that's uh, West Point Army Officer. That's an Airborne Ranger. That's an Air Force pilot and another Air Force pilot. Yeah. So you mm-hmm. know we, we, you know the, the numbers don't lie, right? so yeah
0: and so there's a, there's a lot of years that occur between you know you working at the advertising, doing consulting and and starting to write the checks on the balance off the balance sheet and and I see some analogy I see some some parallels with what I was experiencing. Um, Mike actually it's really funny, Mike you sitting here because you saw me Mike on my journey. Right as 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 Brad is relaying his right, uh, Mike is actually one of the ones who lit a fire to me. He's like, was it? "Sherm, sure, you could do your own thing, man. Like, just go. You know, why why are you trying to go work for someone else? You maybe go do your own thing, right?" And so, what what was life like between that 0102 time frame and that 2008 or 9 time frame when you started writing checks off of your balance sheet? Well, you
1: know. I, I think, I think what I realized is that I could be valuable, but like the consulting thing sucked, right? Because it was like, you know, even if you were successful, if like the CEO did a shitty job. You like, didn't get the contract signed. Right. Or you signed a contract and then the engineering guy doesn't get it delivered. And it's like, you don't get paid, you know, like, and like, you know, at that point I had just had my first kid. I was like, this is, and it was really Todd Dagris um, who after doing the Akamai deal, right. Which I got to see up, up close. Right as his teaching assistant, he went on and founded Spark Capital, which has been amazingly yeah. successful out of Boston. And you know, Todd said, dude, you don't need a fund to start a track record. Like go figure out like you're scrappy. I've never met anybody as scrappy as you. Just go figure out how to start writing checks. So I called the West Point buddy of mine and he said, well, I won't send you money, but I'll write two $50,000 checks in the name of your fund. And then when you launch the fund, we'll figure it out, right? So, you know, I got a little from my dad. I sold some of my 401k. My friend, Clay Jacinto, you know, put up some money. And so I just kind of strung it together. And, you know, what, what's that saying? Fake it until you make it, you know, no. I, was, I was hustling, right? Like I didn't, you know, the first 24 deals in fund one, I wanted to give every single dollar I could to the entrepreneurs. So I did all the legal work myself, right? Because I've been the head of biz dev in a unit, AOL and I, you know, well, whatever a unit at my other company, right? Like I had looked at plenty of contracts, right? Yeah. So I did all the legal work. And if you came into my office, like old school army XO stuff, there were 24 notebooks. Behind my desk, which were like due diligence binders with the printout of all my due diligence and the documents, like old school, sure. Wow. And so, now let's let now we're, we're,
0: we've arrived at Scout, right? We've we've gone through this timeline. We've arrived at Scout Ventures, right? So, what is the ethos and what was the thought process behind Scout Ventures, and what was your vision then uh, when you first when you originally started Scout?
1: Yeah, so, you know, Dick Parsons had given me the advice as soon as I went to take out, you know, when I started my consulting business was Brad Harrison Ventures. And I had like, you know, I had made a logo, but like I told you, I was broke. I had no money to come up with a new name and logo. So I came up with the URL BHV, which were the initials of Brad Harrison Ventures. I took the same logo and I just got rid of the Brad Harrison ventures. Why did that out? You know, and had a new logo and, and we became the BHV Entrepreneurship Fund. But I always wanted to create a brand. I wanted it to be something that spoke to what we did. I wanted it to have a relationship with the military. You know, I was an infantryman, in the Scout Platoon. They're the badasses all the way out in front. I wanted it to have a personal connection. My daughter's name is Scout. And I wanted it to be short. And so here we Got are. It. Got it. Scout VC, baby. And so you started off like most fund managers.
0: Walk walk everyone through um, really quickly, just a synopsis of how much money you started with in Scout Fund 1, or the pilot fund, and then to where you're at now for assets under management. Because I think it's a pretty remarkable story. Uh, my, yeah, so to audience, too, I just want to say that of the veterans, there are not that many veterans that run their own VC shop. Um, of the ones that do, I believe Scout is, is definitely top five for AUM uh, in the United States at, at this
2: time. So, and, and you got to say, for the young crowd, Scout is like top of the food chain. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, top five
0: I mean, AUM. I mean, I mean, just for AUM. Definitely top of the food chain. But I'm just saying, like, it, it's remarkable where you yeah. were at. I think when people, so we we'll get a lot out of that
1: story. So, so I started by hustling the first $15,000 off of my dad, uh, because I uh, I really wanted to write a check to these three Spanish entrepreneurs that I had met mentoring at uh, Columbia Business School. So, you know, I wound up giving, uh, you know, Luis, Powell and Jose the first 15,000, which allowed them to get money from the Lang Fund. And so I started with 15, that turned in a fund one which was 4.2 we did a follow on fund which was 2 million we did a second fund which was 11 million we did a couple of follow on checks there which were you know 4 to 10 million then uh fund 3 was about 40 million and we did about another 25 million in spvs there and then we've done about another 25 million in spvs so you know i i um between that and some other stuff we're you know we're a little over a 100 and we should be at 250 hopefully by next year
2: got it. got it got it now i know you're a biz dev guy how hard was it for you to raise funds from money from lps what was that process like it's
1: the hardest thing in the world it's still the hardest thing in the world i listen i i i think now you know I've been around long enough that I think people are starting to believe like, okay, these guys can do this. Um, You guys both know Sam Ellis. Uh, Sam is an absolute rock star and Sam is helping me um, like reinvigorate the incubation side of the business as well as, you know, bring technical expertise to kind of our due diligence on all of that. Um, And then the other thing which you're going to see over the next uh, probably year is the formalization of a bunch of people from my network that have secretly been kind of behind helping us in different areas. So, for example, you know, Tim Copra, who I believe is class of 87, was commander of the International Space Station. You know, Tim is like our strategic advisor around everything space. Right. So been very fortunate to kind of expand. Um, We got a a new hire joining us in September, Naval Academy. Keep that. We're going to keep that under the wraps until it gets announced. But, you know, uh, and we're really I've never been happier with kind of where the team's at. One of the things I really charged Sam with was adding a layer of technological sophistication to everything that we did firm wide so um you know we've been using this platform called Notion and we had a couple of West Point cadets that actually helped build out this system that now the team is using and it auto populates and tracks stuff related to deals and whatnot so you know I think we continue to get a little bit more sophisticated you know our investment thesis you know, we're fortunate enough that let's say we have a hundred million AUM of data on what we've done right and what we Mm -hmm. haven't done right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the way we think about it, you know, we're going to try to do 24 deals where, you know, we write a million to $2 million check, you know, we'll incubate about $10 million worth of deals where we write, you know, a 300 to $800,000 check is the first check. So really, kind of bifurcate, you know, have those those two different buckets, um, and then for this fund, we will probably concentrate capital into our top four performing companies, you know, when we write that second check. Um, so, you know, you might see us having a first check of two million and a second check of three million, right? You know that that is totally possible on this fund. Uh, as we start to use data to get more insightful about the performance of the company. Um, and as we, you know, just instinctively get more comfortable with the founders and the tech and did they hire the right head of sales and, you know, kind of all the things that really dictate whether or not the company is going to really take off. Got it. So
0: let me ask you this. We we kind of run through your story very quickly, and also development of Scout, where Scouts at now. Let me ask you about for entrepreneurs. You are professional at selecting entrepreneurs. Um, you know, full disclosure, you effectively selected Emily and I with respect to AIN. Uh, you selected a Sam Ellis. You've you've had success. You know, and I I want to for a lot of people listening. While Brad has had three unicorns, he's had several of the companies that made money, right? So it's not just like three unicorns and everything else went to zero. Um, you know, I think uh, Scout, I think is north of sixty percent of its companies make money, which is pretty remarkable uh, in venture. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty good that's pretty good odds in any in any business. And so, um, you know, what are you looking for, and what makes you hinge on to an entrepreneur, uh, and say, hey? This is the one. I think I just want to relay my st- I think I get there with entrepreneurs. I it takes me a bit of time. I spend a little bit of time with them. And after a little bit of time, I can go, yes, like this is I'm I'm a back this human. Um, you know, yeah. you you've got much more experience than these you know, like Mike and I. So uh, here you
1: Yeah, I, I mean I think the most important thing you said in that in that intro is really I'm gonna back this human right? Like you want to, you want to figure out what human you got there, right? You want to understand, you know, you want to, because, you know, you you build a multi-billion dollar company, it's going to take you 10 or 15 years. You better like that person. that's a long time if if you don't like each other. Right. Um, And so I think a lot of it is, is a general chemistry I look for subject matter expertise that creates some sort of asymmetric advantage, you know, like your, you know, the, the entrepreneur came out of Oak Ridge and because they came out of Oak Ridge, you know, they get a million and a half dollars of accelerator time that they don't have to pay for otherwise. Right. You know, whatever it is. Um, we look for um, whether or not it fits our mission of making the world a better, safer place. You know, the hardest thing is to, you know, have to pass on a smart entrepreneur because, you know, quite honestly, you know, it's just not a fit, right? It's not a sector where we can add value, right? I need to be able to leverage my value. 80% of what we're going to do are gonna be companies that have dual use applications. For anybody listening that doesn't understand that, that means they have an application within the government and or the military, and they have a commercial application. Those are much, much harder businesses to build and scale, but when it works, it's awesome because the government spends a lot, a lot of money on technology and innovation Um, And so for us, um, we focus on frontier tech, broadly defined AI machine learning, autonomy, robotics, drones, cybersecurity, physical security, quantum space. And I would say we're spending a lot of time looking at like energy, battery, you know, kind of like, you know, nothing, (laughs) none of these technology things work if there's not power, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Mike. I think it's interesting how uh, earlier you said, oh, we've just been lucky, right? But you've got three unicorns. And I'm a big fan of Jim Collins, and he talks about return on luck, you know? So you can have people with the same deals in front of them, but you can take it to a level that others uh, won't necessarily do so. And so even your thesis now, you developed this over time, I'm assuming, like as clear as you're able to articulate it now, wasn't always the case.
1: No, no, no. I mean, listen, you know, I would say that, and, and Mike, that's super observant, right? Like I started as a generalist, right? And every year I did the equivalent of what we would call in the military an after-action review. Every year, what did I do well? What did I didn't do well? What company? And, and part of that is like straight KPIs. I raised this much money. I did this many deals. The deals are generating this much revenue, right? It was super old school. I have an Excel spreadsheet. I would send every CEO the same thing. I would cut and paste them in a workbook. I'd aggregate the data and I have my annual like data dashboard. Right. So, you know, excuse me, data is super important. And then, um, as, as Mike mentioned earlier, the importance of mentors having the right mentors, um, not always uh, not always to be loving and affectionate, right? Sometimes it's to get the hard advice. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing, Sherm, is, uh, really allowing the team to evolve, you know, um, the needs of any organization change as the organization scales and grows, right? what i what I needed, seven years ago is not what I need now. Right. Um, so, you know, I have been kind of doing that, you know, one of the things related to, you know, why, why AIN was a thing was like, I knew that I couldn't also focus on that part of the market and execute on what I wanted to execute. Right. And I thought that was a, a huge opportunity in the market. Um, And so, you know, that was why we went through with the concept. That's why we recruited you and, you know, you've absolutely crushed it and makes me proud every day that I picked the right, you know, the right team to run it. Sometimes you pick the wrong team. That sucks. Right. Sometimes, you know, you just can't um, predict what's going to happen. Right. And and listen, you know, your your comment about everybody being human, you know, sometimes the entrepreneur isn't good because they have another blind spot you know, they're not in a healthy relationship, whether they're married or domestic partner or gay, straight, like if you don't have a good relationship, entrepreneurship is brutal on a relationship, right? You're working, you're traveling, you might be broke 90% of the time, (laughs) you know, like, you know, I think there was about six years where my wife and dad were like, get a job, man, get a job, right? And Now, nobody's saying that. Right. But, you know, we're, you know, we're essentially, you know, 13 years into this journey that is, you know, become scout.
2: I appreciate you talking about that because I was recently on a podcast and somebody asked me, they said, who do you look up to? Right. Like, who is it? Who's your heroes? And I couldn't put a face on it, but it's the person that can be a high performer at one percenter and still take care of home base. You know, having a family, you know, having a wife and kids and stuff, not just this hustle porn, you know, work 24-7, yada, yada, yada. And so for you to talk about the reality and the challenge of that, because that's something I'm interested in learning about how you were able to balance it all. Well, I'm still very much in the thick of my entrepreneurial journey. I have a girlfriend, but I wonder, like, how do people like yourself manage to handle all these companies? How do you manage to deal with the mental clarity, you know, because brain fog and decision fatigue is real? and show up and perform you know every day both on the job and for your family yeah um
1: for me i try to do yoga twice a week i try to meditate a couple times a week we now have um at scout we we now have a breath work that i have on the schedule twice a week for 15 minutes where i get everybody to zoom in and i make them get up and we do some you know ring of fire breathing and we do some box breathing and you know i make them stretch it out and i play the flute you know i got a shamanic flute you know i could throw down a couple of notes for you guys if you want to hear it on the podcast I don't know how well that came through. There's like echo and reverberation.
2: That came through great.
1: Yeah, yeah so, but, but, of,
0: but, that have a little but, playing on it. This is great.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. I tried, you know, it's funny because my, my friends are in a band and, uh, you know, their band, they play instruments, but they're also DJs. And so I was like, you know, I said to Tommy, who's one of the two members of the band, I was like, dude. Like, let me come out to LA let's just lay down a couple of tracks with a flute and then you can cut it into one of your tracks, right? So I, n- I never get out to LA, but he winds up cutting a song and it wins a, a Grammy. And I was like, bro, you could have laid my flute track uh, in the Grammy. It would have been perfect. So anyway, but I think Mike, to your point, I have spent a lot of time um on my own um spiritual health my own mental health my own physical health you know i i know i mentioned to you earlier i i just had one of my hips I had a, a special procedure called the hip resurfacing i'm having the other one done and then quite honestly mike like i want to start hitting the bag again because you know for years right like you go work with a trainer and do 30 minutes on a bag you're good right? (laughs) You're going to be good. Guaranteed. So, you know, I think you got to figure that out. Whatever it is, you got to understand there's really four things, right? You got to manage your stress. You got to manage your sleep. You got to manage your diet and you got to manage your exercise. And if you do all of those things, it's going to create the space, more space you to take care of your family and then you know the other thing is you know family first right like i had a fundraising call today and my daughter was like in not a good place and needed me to come pick her up so like i did the call from the road so i think also figuring out your priorities and how to do that and for me you know that just means i work a much longer duration every day right i'm always available because You know, from 6.30 to 7.30, I might not be available because I'm going to have family dinner. So, you know, I think really making sure that you have some things, you know, I, I love my dog to death. I take her up into the woods a couple of days a week. That lets me clear my head, right? Fresh air, mental, you know, listen to some Bob Marley or don't listen to anything at all and just to your nature. Whatever you need on that given day. And I think that's really important. And I encourage that into CEOs because the loneliest job is to be the founder. It's the loneliest job, right? No matter how many mentors, advisors, investors, right? Like ultimately the buck stops here, right? If there's not enough money in the account, I have to wire the money in the account. That's my job, right? That's being the founder. That's really being responsible. And, you know, you want to get that, you know, embedded into the firm culture. So everybody thinks the same way. Everybody realizes like, oh yeah, like, you know, that, that money is like, you know, that's got to create value, right? Every time we spend any money, we need to create value collectively. Um, And, you know, we actually just took a bigger office space in New York because, you know, we got a bunch of entrepreneurs and we're incubating something. And I wanted to make sure, you know, I created the environment to encourage that entrepreneurship. Let me ask you a question. The the unique phenomenon
0: with military veteran entrepreneurs where, you know, we're not unique, but we are spread all over the country when when a lot of us get out, right? Um, And for those folks that are coming from not in New York or not in Austin or not in California, uh, what advice do you have from uh, that that person that, you know, meets a woman that lives in North Carolina. He was stationed at Bragg and, you know, he's with, you know, that's where he's living now, or he's down in Virginia, Southern Virginia, because he was in Norfolk or Damnick or something like that beforehand, in Virginia Beach. And now he's kind of, you know, in small town of VA. Um, or they're up in, up in Seattle, Tacoma area, right? And, and outside the city, right? Um, so these are smaller venture ecosystems. Um, you know, what, what advice do you have for the, for those kind of folks?
1: Well, the first thing you got to do is I don't care what market it is. There is an ecosystem. So you got to like find out what the epicenter of that ecosystem is. Is it an event? Is it a happy hour? It, it, it doesn't matter. And you just got to go mix it up, man. Gotta go mix it up, get in there and start asking. You know about the resources and the community right like the great thing about startups is it is it's a community right um and so you just got to find your community I, I love i love
0: you said you said that now you said that before about finding your tribe as a veteran and know it can be very tough to folks you know um and i want to i want to address something a bit controversial but not controversial but it is what it is like so you're jewish Mike and I are Black. Mike's actually writing a book on Black veteran entrepreneurship, right? Um, and so, you know, we haven't, we, we haven't necessarily been part of the majority. Uh, and there's some unique challenges that go along with not being part of the majority and trying to start something from an entrepreneurship standpoint. Are there any thoughts or advice that you have um, for those types of folks that are not in the majority that are starting something uh, in line with the, the, the book Mike is writing?
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, I I you know, I I pride myself as you know because we get to work together a lot, which is great. You know, I I pride myself on trying to support underrepresented founders, right? And in my mind that's founders of, you know, the military, that's, you know, people of color, that's women, you know, about 80% of our capital has you know gone to that demographic and i'm super super proud of that got it um i would say in my mind if you come from an underrepresented class first off can always reach out to me sherman or mike right that's number one but what you have to do is you have to find those mentors right and you know mike mentioned it right you know Um, this, this idea that, you know, you gotta just Mm -hmm. focus on developing your narrative. You have to find the local community. And then within that, you got to find a mentor and then, you know, start to navigate. And then the other thing is don't take no for an answer. Just keep grinding till you get where you need to get.
2: Got it. One thing I try to do is uh, on all my platforms is just kind of show people what's out there. You know, I went through Stanford, Ignite. I was only black male in the cohort. But a lot of people didn't realize that that's an opportunity for people. We got the Hoover Veteran Fellowship. There's tons of opportunity out there. And one thing Sherman and I are both aligned on is that be so good they can't ignore you. You know, yeah. and that's one of the tips, uh, the themes of my book is about how do you just perform regardless of the circumstances and regardless of the odds because at the end of the day, we only all have one life to live. And I don't think it's necessarily best to spend it, letting other people rob you of a happy, fulfilling life. And the thing about venture is that ventures uh, create their own future. Because Correct. the market, you know—it it's not a given. You have to actually get out there and create it. Just like you did when you cut that first check for $15,000, you manifested and you took action to create the future that you have now.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, totally. It, it couldn't be said better than that. And, you know, it's just, you just got to keep doing it, man. <laughs> I mean, over and over again, you just got to keep, you know, you got to keep showing up. Um, so we're in we're
0: a day. really unique, really, really unique time right now in the sense that, um, you know, the market is down hard. Um, you know, this is probably the third largest down cycle for the overall venture industry. The first one was the one when you first came in in early 2000s. There was another one 08, 07, 08 timeframe. And we're in a third one now. Um, and then, but at the same time, you you invest in dual use technology and the US Investment Competition Act just passed within which is the CHIPS Act. But the, the bill is much larger than just the CHIPS Act. And it actually passed. It got, it's, it's legislation, as law now. Where do you see venture going? five to 10 years from now, you're one of the top veteran entrepreneurs in the United States. You're one of the top dual use tech fund managers in the United States, right? Um, So it'd be be great to kind of get your input and where you see things going.
1: Yeah. um, Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, First off, we are not going to compete on a global level with uh, China if we don't get more support from the government. The CHIPS Act, critical. You know, the endless frontier, you know, whatever, whatever they're calling it. Like, we need every one of those dollars to support innovation in the U.S. We need that for jobs. We need that for protecting our IP. We need all of that. And I think... You know, listen, I think it's a pretty good sign that, you know, General Catalyst, Lux, AVC, you know, Mithril, right? These are, you know, these are all really, really smart people are starting to pay attention to dual use, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden you realize, you know, the defense budget's going to be over a trillion dollars in 2024. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Um, and so if you think about it, this, we have always been great in America at our university labs and our, our dev and, and being, you know, the brightest minds, you know, now it's really about how do we, how do we create the infrastructure to harness that and stop the leak of intellectual property? Um, there's no shortage of capital. It's about getting that capital deployed efficiently into the companies in the scout world that make the world a better, safer place in what we think are the critical areas of technology over the next two to three decades.
2: As we start to see more and more veteran entrepreneurs gain experience, you start to continue to lift as we climb, pulling up guys like Sherman and myself, et cetera. Do you see their opportunity for uh, veteran focused uh startup studios now i know you already talked about incubating in-house um, at scout and obviously you got incubators and accelerators and people get confused about that but essentially getting operators to work alongside these veteran entrepreneurs and leverage their knowledge skills and experience to help them uh launch and succeed because you're seeing across the board a lot more uh, studio models starting to uh pop up
1: yeah, I mean, listen. Like I said, you know, we are we are spending a um, ton of time uh, on our incubation program, and for us, um, you know, I think the startup model that you're talking about it, that is it, that is the way to build companies, right? So, you know, w- when you're in these you know, cities, um, you know, find that community and, you know, focus on it, you know, because you're going to be able to build these things. And I agree with you. I, I think that's the right way. This startup studio, especially for veterans, where many veterans tend to lack the technical talent, or if they have the technical talent, they don't understand, you know, they don't have the, you know, the business side, right? yeah so i want
0: i want to try something a little bit different because we're getting towards the end here um sure. so it's a rapid fire really quickly um and it's um it's going to be it's, it's it works in twos right so we're going to do two of, two of people in, in throughout history if you could meet them who would you meet um two of the best books you've read as of late um and two of the best deals that you've seen recently and they can be your investments. That's fine. Um, uh, and so I just want to kind of run, start going down that list. So uh,
2: and I got one rapid fire. I got to ask him to. Okay.
0: Awesome. 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 Okay. Okay. We're, let, let, let's so start. I mean, I'm sorry. So people, people in history, throughout history, if you could sit down with two people, who would you who would it be?
1: You know, I, 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 I would say probably Da Vinci. Right? Because that dude, I mean, he's like maybe di- maybe divine knowledge in that guy. So Da Vinci and Jerry Garcia. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, is, he, is he dead? Uh, uh, yeah, Jerry, Jerry Garcia is dead. Jerry okay. Garcia is dead. You know, I just think that guy had such an interesting role on the, the culture and You know, uh, anyway, I'd say he'd probably be pretty interesting to sit down with. Um, So that'd be the two people. Two books. um, uh, Supernatural, Becoming Supernatural by Joe Dispenza. Um, I think everybody should read that. Um, And then probably To Kill a Mockingbird.
0: Got it, two two deals that you've uh, seen either you've seen or you, you didn't get into or you did you did invest in and you're like this is actually you know pretty interesting.
1: I mean I love our company Lone Star Space Holdings. You know we're gonna we're gonna have a, a data center on the moon. Uh, we should have our our first test server up there in December of 2022. So pretty excited by that. I really like our company, Vanta, which is um, developing coaching and training for uh, kids in schools around eSports. So this old idea that you know you would join the Little E team and you would learn sportsmanship and how to play, you know that that doesn't exist in the eSports world and I think you're getting an entire generation of kids that are losing out on you know learning some really important values and i think schools are realizing you know at the undergrad and graduate level that you know high school that you know these kids need more development so i'm really excited about vanta as well
0: got it and then there're two you have several sub industries you invest in what are two sub industries that you that are maybe really small now that are growing rapidly and you're deeply interested in. You're like, man, that that industry is really small and nascent today, but it's going to be massive one
1: day. Quantum encryption. Uh, You know, this idea of, of being able to, you know, put chips in, you know, the most vulnerable IoT devices in the world and make them so, you know, you don't have to worry that, you know, the Chinese government is going to take over your house through your Nest camera, right? Like, um, so I'd say that that's pretty small now, and I think it's going to grow. Um, And I think all of the technologies that we're doing that are focused on um, advanced agriculture, you know, increasing the yield in greenhouses, using film for quantum dots, solar windows, um, both those technologies are for our company ubiquity, um, growing food inside of structured, you know, facilities like SustainaTech. You know, I think that becomes part of, you know, ultimately to make the world, a, a happy, peaceful place, we need food, water, shelter, and security for all humans and, you know, We have the technology, right? Peter Diamantis, who I met, you know, 20 years ago when I was at AOL. Peter's an MIT alum as well. And, you know, he reached out, you know, to have me pitch AOL on, you know, doing the X Prize, And uh, I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Um, But, you know, Peter talks about this idea of abundance, right, the abundance mindset. And most of the world, they think, you know, you got 1.6 billion people that, you know, limited access to fresh water and electricity, right? So there's hard to think about abundance. Um, And then you've got, you know, people that have so much that, you know, it's ridiculous. So I think trying to, to, all of us having a little bit more of a, hey, you know, if I take care of the planet and you take care of the planet, you know it's good for the planet right so i think this idea of a collective consciousness and abundance i think is really important
2: i just finished the art of impossible by steve koestler i believe and i'm also reading bold and in uh, the art of impossible he talks about the x-prize and how long it took him and what impossible really looked like which was peter sitting down at that laptop and manifesting this vision um mm. for the world and so my one question for you brad is what does it take for you to go from 1% to that 0.01%? Because people are already listening. There's MIT, you're top of the food chain around venture capital. But what does it take for you to get to that next level that you're trying to go to?
1: You know, I, I, I think it would be if we could get more institutions to really understand what we're doing Like if they understood the impact, right? If they met you guys and understood the impact that I've had on you over time. And then they looked at the performance and they said, okay, like this is like a group that we know if we put money at it is not only going to give financial return, but it's going to make the world a better, safer place. You know, most of the time we're having conversations and that's not. You know, that's, uh, that's harder to get across. So I think that's number one, having more capital. And then the other thing is just time, you know, it just takes time to, to get through it, you know, I mean, ID.me could sell for, you know, could go public and be worth a hundred billion dollars. And I know that sounds crazy, but you know, not if we're managing the identities of 80% of the Americans logging into key systems, right? American company, American engineers, American founder, American security, right? Like, you know, I would love to see that happen. But, you know, I I, I think it's a little bit more time so I can get
2: these companies and sell them. Got it. Well, We appreciate you spending this time with us. You answered all my questions. Sherman, do you want to close us out? Yeah, so Brad, um, honestly, I want to give you publicly your flowers. Um,
0: I, I believe in that. Giving people flowers while they're here, um, and and I think both for Mike and I, you've been you've been instrumental to our lives and our entrepreneurial pursuits. I know from where we came from, uh, there's been we we've come a long way. Um, both both Mike and I, in our own unique way, we've both come a long way. Um, and you've helped um, kind of guide us along the path. You provided that ne- that mentorship, that network to take us to another level. Uh, and manifest, and and um, you know it's it's just phenomenal what you've been able to achieve. Um, I mean, for everyone, if you didn't hear that, I mean, a, a man starting off a fifteen thousand dollar check and four point two million eventually, and and growing it to about a hundred some now, and soon to be over two hundred, right? That that's that's pretty remarkable. Um, thank you. And and you know, and then you paid it forward, right, to us, right, to both Mike and I. So um, yeah, we just want to thank you. We hope that all the listeners got a lot out of this. Uh, one of the key things I took away was, you know, find your tribe, right? And um, if you're a military veteran entrepreneur of all types and stripes, heck, if you are an entrepreneur um, in general, you know the the people on the call right now on, on this on this podcast are your tribe.
1: Yeah, uh, no, no, hundred percent, and I, and I encourage you know, those guys to follow both of you on, on LinkedIn, because, you know, you guys are sharing a lot of good content and, you know, the only way to learn it is to just consume it. Yep. Absolutely.
0: Well, with that being said, um, we're done.